Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. I'm Alan Stoga, chairman of the Telberg Foundation. We are all aware of the devastating power of climate change, record heat waves in India and Pakistan, endless drought in the American West, massive floods in South Africa and Kenya, uncontrolled fires in Siberia. The list is endless, and the impact on living things, humanity included, is terrifying. But how can we understand the reality of the changes underway around the world? What's actually happening in the Arctic and in the boreal forests? in the Amazon and in Africa? How do changes in those disparate ecosystems relate to each other and to places where most of us live? What's likely to happen next and what can we do about it? To look for answers, we recently organized a conversation among Gladys Kalema, Francisco Hildebrand, and Taro Mistonen, three people who are deeply knowledgeable and even more deeply committed to finding solutions to the challenges thrown up by the changing climate. Our discussion was hosted by Vamvaku Revival, and the Stavros Niarchos Foundation, and was moderated by Martin Coates. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Martin, um, jack of several trades, and a big fan of the Tolberg discussion format. As one friend once told me, it's where you get to ask the questions that you wouldn't necessarily dare ask somewhere else. So in that spirit, I would like to have this session about uh, fooling with nature. And with me on this panel, uh, three distinguished experts. Welcome. We have Gladys, a veterinarian from Uganda, also founder of Conservation Through Public Health. Um, We have Francis, or Paco, as he's known to friends, uh, president of the Fundacion Gaia Amazonas from Colombia. And we have Tiro Mustonen, if I pronounced that correctly, uh, well, a fisherman, a mayor, and a climate scientist. And on top of that, president and co-founder of the Snow Change Cooperative in Finland. Welcome. Thank you. Um, You are conservationists, you are restoring nature. And I guess my, my, my first question would be is, what are we trying to conserve? What are we trying to restore? And do we have a baseline to work towards? Who would like to start with that question? Gladys? I'm very excited to be here today, um, here in Greece. I've been working with gorillas, mountain gorillas specifically, for over 25 years. And I've seen a lot of changes since we started. And those changes have actually been good for the gorillas. The numbers have actually gone up from, they've almost doubled over the past 25 years, starting off with only about 650 individuals in the whole world. There's now over a thousand, just like 1,000, a minimum of 1,060. And I would say that what we're trying to conserve in this case, I can use it as an example for other species, 
is, you know, we're trying to bring back a species from extinction, number one. And I think it's now, they're now showing a positive growth trend that the IUCN downgraded the gorillas from critically endangered to endangered because of this positive growth trend. What has been, what has helped that positive growth trend is um, engagement of communities. Community conservation took off in Uganda and I think many parts of the world in the early 1990s. In the 50s, it used to be fences and fines, keep the wildlife in, keep people out, shoot the poacher, and there was no engagement. Don't even hire people from where the communities are, you know, where the wildlife is, and that created a lot of resentment. But then comes the 90s. We, in Uganda, for example, we had Queen Elizabeth National Park, Murchison, Kidepo that were developed in the 50s. Then in the 90s, new national parks came up. The Forest Park of Windy became a national park and other parks. And in that time, it became that you have to hire people from the community, you have to engage communities much more. Tourism began in those areas and money from tourism is shared with the local communities. They get enough that they're happy enough. They are part of the industry. They're hired as rangers. Actually, we call them born-again poachers because they used to be, they know the forest really well, but now they're earning a living by protecting it instead of destroying it. Um, they're hired by the lodges. They're hired by the NGOs like ours. They're also selling crafts, accommodation, food. They're all part of the ecotourism industry. It's not just handouts, which is much better. It's more sustainable. Um, veterinary care has improved. Research has improved. So all of that is great. The numbers are going up. But now we have a new problem. There isn't enough space. There's very high human population growth or around Bwindi. This is typical for many of the protected areas around the world, actually not only in Africa. And if we don't address high human population growth, which is being made worse by climate change, you find that the habitat is just is still going to be very small. So now our next challenge is to try and convince people to sell land so we can expand the habitat. They don't have, the, the gorillas numbers are growing, but they're always conflicting with communities. And in this way, they're picking up diseases. Um, one thing we discovered very early on in my career is that the gorillas got disease from people living around the park who have very little health care. Then we started improving the health of the people to protect the gorillas as well as continue to improve the health of the gorillas and other wildlife. And so there's gonna be a lot more human-wildlife interaction as long as you know, we don't address things like high human population growth. The idea would be to buy land from people and restore it so that there's more space for the gorillas and other wildlife in protecting a charismatic species like the gorilla that generates a lot of revenue which is helping the economy to grow. 60% of revenue for the whole wildlife authority comes from gorilla tourism. You're protecting all the other species. There's over 300 species of birds. There's elephants, chimpanzees, over six species of monkeys, over 200 species of butterflies. There's an amazing ecosystem and water. It's a whole climate modulator, the forest, and there's an important source of water. So it all comes with maybe you could focus on a charismatic species, to protect all the rest, but definitely restoration is needed. You're starting up <laughs> off a positive note, which is a trend break. Um, can we, great, we're saving species, but the, the second point that you're bridging, and I'll go to Tiro in that sense, can we, can we rewild, can we conserve enough, and can we bring it back to a state 
which keeps the planet livable for all species. Thank you. <laughs> Tiro. I would try to summarize some of the thoughts from the north, the Arctic, and the Boreal, uh, where I come from, um, because it feels like summer here and it's so hot, I can't believe it. When I left home, <laughs> it was minus four and uh, 40 centimeters of snow, so this is like a paradise. But uh, I would start the answer to this question that you're asking from um, perhaps another angle first. Let's think about this place where we are. At some point in, in historical frame, some of the shepherds here saw a mystical light up in the mountain. And that's why the monastery was founded here. They saw something which we might refer to as a mystical event in nature or highly significant in their frame of mind. It, and it was big enough that they decided that this is an important place because of its spiritual or cultural values. There was no, at least based on the information I have, that was the reason why they founded this town which is now undergoing this great restart as we are calling it. And that's a segue into the idea that what is nature? When we discuss rewilding or restoration or conservation, we rarely discuss the fact that it has potentially other characteristics, the seen and the unseen. If we are protecting or maintaining those biodiverse systems, we are also taking care of the world. We are taking care of what's known as biocultural approach or how the people and the landscape are connected all around the world, except perhaps in Antarctica, and even the Maori went there before the... Uh, uh, European vessels, and this mystic light that was shining on that mountain led me to kind of think that what can we try to do to better understand that it's not about the hectares, the species, and, and uh, wild nature, but it's actually a very profound communion of coexisting with the world. And I'll be brief, but of course then let's, let's go to Alan's world, which is the runaway uh, destructive planet or <clears throat> something to that fashion. The Arctic and the Boreal are being hit hardest, perhaps with the outside the Pacific Islands um, regarding climate change. So one of the things we witness up in the north is the uh, loss of cryosphere, snow and ice conditions, you have to recall that snow and ice are our life, both for the animals and the traditional villages. Snow is protection, it's not enemy. When the snow cover is on, on a forest or a tundra, it's protecting the plants, the wildlife and the landscape from the frost. Now that we are getting <coughs> temperatures in northeastern Siberia up to 38 degrees Celsius, or in Canada, in the boreal town of Lytton, 49 degrees last year, and in my village, 37 degrees Celsius. These are drivers of magnitude that you don't even understand, if I'm very um, provocative. Everything is now changing. There's a system shift going on. And just to capture that, um, a lot of the species are on the move. A lot of the southern 
generalist species are coming further up north in the oceans and on terrestrial lands, and they are replacing endemic or cold-dependent fish, butterflies, birds, mammals like the Arctic fox. Solution space, rewilding and restoration. What are we restoring? Well, the one sentence takeaway message here is that there's no going back. We are not heading to an Arctic or boreal that used to be in 1950s or before 1987. That's usually the year in Alaska, Canada, Greenland and our place, which is considered to be the last of the normal winters. However, there's inherent value in, in maintaining natural systems and, where applicable, trying to restore and rewild connectivity. And that's building on this idea of the mystic light up in the mountain with the idea that nature has inherent value. We should be very careful in imposing our values on an ecosystem that we don't, we don't even know about uh, what's going on. We don't know all the species out in the ocean. We, I think it's about 10 million species or something that we haven't ca- calculated. And in time of big shifts like the one now driven by climate change and land use in the Arctic and North, um, to conclude, um, there's still a lot of value in maintaining natural systems because they will become the new homes of the ones that will um, maintain food chains, even though those food chains will be new or altered. Pollinators, fresh water, as we heard. So there will be a lot of losses in the north. We will see or witness the the, um, extinctions of many gold-dependent species, especially the ocean is a tricky one. We know that there is a sunfish coming up now into high Arctic. The mosaic exploration from two years ago found cod, Atlantic cod, on the North Pole or close to it. And and humanity will have a new ocean soon. People don't maybe realize that, but in most of our lifetime, the central Arctic Ocean will open up. Now, on governance, um, Korea, China, EU, America and Russia have agreed on preemptive treaty on fisheries in the Central Arctic Ocean. That's a brand new treaty and it's a source of hope that some of these countries were able to um, um, agree on something while everything's under shifting conditions. Finally, ecosystem restoration functions, it's extremely important, especially on northern peatlands, because one third of world's soil-based carbon is not only in the Amazonia that we hear next about, but also in our place. So we are the second, second lungs of the world. These peatlands are drawing down CO2 and they are breathing out methane. However, that restoration is a novel ecosystem. It's not a return to 1900s or 2002. It's a completely new set of realities and and, uh, that's what ecosystem restoration will look like in the future in the north. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Tiro. Lots to pick up on there. Um, Profound communion. You work with the Indians in uh, the Amazon basin. Profound changes, no going back. Hmm. What does it look like? What does it look like now? 
What would it look like in 2035? Wow. Well, good morning, everybody. Super glad to be again here with the Talberg family. Just uh, over a week ago, I was in La Sierra Nevada. There is this amazing uh, mountain region in Colombia with the shaman and with a, and with a friend, with Wade Davis, an author. And we're sitting with this shaman, and uh, he was talking and explaining to us a mountain in front of us. And the shaman was saying is that you Western people don't understand that this mountain without humans already has an order. It already has a governance. It already has a system. It already has a dynamic. When we as humans interact with this mountain, we need to understand how that system works so we can have a reciprocity because it's an, it's an integral life system. And the West, for lack of a better word, we keep on seeing nature as a collection of objects and not a communion of subjects, not a life system of which we are part of. A baseline for conservation, as long as we keep on seeing nature as a third element that needs to be protected, we are going to have a fractional understanding and a fractional solution. And uh, it really comes down again to a matter of values and principles, you know, and reconnecting again with nature as a life system that we're part of, as a complex, interdependent, interconnected system. Uh, the Amazon, and this changes the whole framework when you look then at targets you know, that there are for conservation in the Amazon, for example, when you really put, when you look through the filter of connectivity, of biological and cultural connectivity. The Amazon, for example, it works as a single system. And according to the latest scientific studies, between 20 and 25% of destruction of the Amazon will take it to the point of no return of collapse. There's nothing we can do about it. I mean, there's so many pieces you can take out of an engine before the engine stops working. Well, today we are at 17% of destruction. 67% of the Amazon is under pressures from one sector or the other. And 52% of the Amazon is already showing signs of early signs of degradation. In my personal opinion, we have a 10, 15% chance to avoid that point of collapse. And yes, targets of conservation are important. Yes, we need to get more territories protected. But it's not just about keeping pristine forests. It's as well, as well how to work with private sector, how to work with towns. I mean, you can have functional connectivity as well. We don't need to have one tree after the other. The world has changed. Dynamics have changed. But it needs to be a cross-cutting approach. It's not an environmental issue. It is a political issue. It is an economic issue. It is an education issue. So... Um, this connectivity, as well when you frame it, not beyond the environmental language, uh, the north part of the Amazon region, where we call the AAA corridor, the Andes, Amazon Atlantic, is the last strip of continuous forest that there is in the Amazon that maintains key ecosystem services like water transportation. Well, 70% of the GDP of Latin America depends on this last strip of forest. 67% of food production, 65% of energy, energy production. So I think it's important in conservation as well to deframe it as just an environmental issue. Well, on the first hand, to work on this approach of connectivity, cultural and biological connectivity of the Amazon rainforest, and to engage other sectors because it is not just an environmental element. It has to do as well how we approach our relation with economy, with education, with health. So I'll leave uh, the other impacts for the, for the next question. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. 
Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org/donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org/donate. Thank you, uh, Barco. Uh, again, wide-ranging thoughts, and I'd, I'd actually like to go back to you, Gladys, uh, before we. I mean, so much has been said that I think you're provoking questions from the uh, the audience. So we'll move to that in a second. But um, you've both, you're both working with traditional communities, and Gladys, you're well, um, you're not working in that same space, but you are very conscious of the relationship between people living in their environment and the environment itself. And you're taking a, a scientific approach to try and balance rebalancing that, restoring uh, something of that wider equilibrium. Uh, what, are you, what, what have you learned over the, the past 15, 20 years in your work? Are we, as a, as a species, I use it correctly there, are we capable of rebalancing in living, living in harmony with nature? Um, yes. I think the answer is yes. I'm probably the most optimistic person <laughs> yeah, um, about it, but I really do think that we are. And a lot of it is behavior change. Yeah, behavior change is, is needed, and it's a very big focus of, you know, some sectors are better at it than others. I have to say the public health sector is way better than many sectors with behavior change because it's needed all the time, whether it's improving hygiene or whatever, but we've used a lot of that to push it into conservation, getting people to understand the importance of planting trees, coexisting with nature. So behavior change makes me feel optimistic. You can actually change behavior, but it takes time. Um, making sure that communities are the leaders in conservation. Community, they have to be the leaders. They can't always be waiting for someone to tell them what to do. They have to feel that this is their thing and they're, they're the ones taking the lead. So that, that is also very important. Um, we focus on a One Health approach to conservation based on my experiences as a vet. And we're finding that as community health is improving, the health of the gorillas is improving, and the species numbers are growing, and that's all good for conservation. But when you improve community health, you're making people feel that you also care about them, because healthcare is a basic human right. You're not only concerned about the trees and the forests. I think it's, I'm optimistic because the more that we engage the people who coexist with this wildlife, who are learning to coexist with this wildlife, the better chances that we have. It has to really be done down at the grassroots level. For example, there's a, a Batwa community that lived in the forest and they had to be taken out or evicted by the government to create a national park. They actually coexisted with the gorillas. The ones in Uganda and Rwanda coexisted with the gorillas because they believe that if you look in the eyes of a gorilla, it's bad luck. So they used to coexist with them. But then they used to set snares for other animals that they like to eat, like the small antelope, the daika, the bush pig. And, but they coexisted. You know, they, they, had a, they were managing to exist with nature. But they had to be taken out of the forest in order for tourism to happen. And then tourism happened. And, we're, and a lot of, they look very poor, and a lot of people give them handouts, which isn't good, because then they end up drinking. You know, they have that whole thing, similar to the Aborigines in Australia, those kind of communities who 
are displaced and they're not happy where they are. But if you empower them, you give them skills, which is what we do. They're the ones who are promoting healthcare in their settlements, promoting conservation. They'll come up, you know, one time in a meeting, they were like, we now want to enter the park and visit as tourists. They're proud of themselves. They're proud that they can sell crafts, that they can be, they have dignity. And that's something that's very important for the local communities. You, they actually have a lot of power and they have a lot of dignity. You have to build upon that, not seeing them as poor, marginalized people who need support, but seeing them as the solution to conservation, the solution to restoration. They need to be the leaders and we need to empower them to become, to fulfill their, to realize their leadership potential in having, creating a planet in balance. Tara, we've spoken about value and putting a value on nature. And you have, I know you have strong opinions about that. Why do I always have strong opinions on this and that? <laughs> Nuclear weapons, value. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the mountain. Are you looking at the mountain? Why are you looking at your booklets and cell phones and us? Why don't, why don't you look outside and see the multiple species of trees? Did you see the bird that came on the coffee break? Or the butterflies or the, the um, bumblebees? They are out there. They are right now out there. Did you see them? Some of you saw them. Maybe all of you saw them. Let's not create any, any uh, accusations. But uh, how many euros was that bumblebee? Five, seven, seven hundred, one. So here the trouble starts. Um, earlier this morning we, we were reviewing the idea of uh, Westphalia and the establishment of power and European power on the globe. And as a part of that event, that got to have a price. Now, you have a number of cultures that don't put a price on that. There's a lot of indigenous governance. I said about the Maori, for example, who wiped out the Moa, yes they did, but they also traveled on their Polynesian waka canoes all across the Pacific. With other economic systems, they went to the Antarctic islands, we know that. How is that possible without the European technology and mindset? Well, what I'm trying to say is that there's something else going on. and. If we look at the power and the history of how that became money, or the bumblebee became money, that's our root cause of trouble. It's not going back, there's no way of going back. So the global order will stay, oil prices will be there, water will become very expensive, it's already quite expensive, privatized. The uh, safety or f future hope maybe lies in two sets of uh, systems. What can the global order and, and uh, man's world, because it's really about men, not so much about women or other genders, that imposed and used that power historically to have a relationship of peace and 
perhaps demarcation with those systems that are still maintaining a non-monetary understanding of nature. That's a big global treaty. How do we safeguard the Pacific Islands, your communities, the Amazonia, the Sami, the Inuits, or give them the right to choose what will be their range of barter trade, financial trade, and non-monetary economy as they coexist with this planet. I have been going to this for 25 years, and as you can see, it's not been very successful because I'm like a broken vinyl record. But uh, let me try to put it this way, um, that the, the value starts from that mystic light on the mountain for the lack of other example, and I'd like to use it here because it happened here, and we are all here for this one day or two days. So ultimately, all of what Kleders was saying is correct, but I would take it just in conclusion to a <clears throat> one more sentence, which is that how do we decolonize our minds to understand what the world is? Because ultimately, there's no nature. There's only the world and us in it. And again, next time on the lunch break or <coughs> when you go out, uh, think about the bumblebee. Was it seven euros or was it 7,000 euros or something completely different? Thank you. Paco, you wanted to respond to that. Well, to complement a little bit, and I completely agree. Again, there's no nature. We are part of it. Uh, do we have a chance? A very slim one. Now, I just mentioned in my previous intervention, my take is that in the Amazon we have a 10-15% chance to go through the window of opportunity of not collapsing the whole thing. So now that really needs immediate actions, short term, medium term. We talk about restoration, yes, in environmental terms, but I think restoration as well in cultural terms. Uh, uh, indigenous peoples play a central role in the protection of a key ecosystems. 5% of the world population, 80% of critical ecosystems in the world. And traditional knowledge is what maintains is the forefront of protection of key ecosystems. As traditional knowledge gets lost, the relation with the territory, the mountain is not sacred anymore. It has a price tag. So, uh, talking about the value of nature, I mean, what do we really lose when we lose a hectare? Is it X amount of tons of carbon? Is it X amount of bumblebees? Or is it a, a piece of that engine that connects us all from which jobs, economies, health, food depends upon? It's impossible to take a number upon this. And yes, some approaches to put a price on nature to try and get compensations can be useful. But just as long as we keep on seeing it as putting nature into the market, I think it is going to be a fair, it is going to be a fair attempt. It can be a first step in the wrong direction, but anyway, it's in a certain direction. Uh, the good news is that in the Amazon, there are absolutely amazing um, programs now happening where indigenous communities are developing their own political economic uh, systems that are based on reciprocity, that are based on everything they plan is with nature as part of that it has an agency, you know, that it is part of that decision making. So taking the economic world, if it, it, if it passes through the values and principles of local indigenous communities, and it can be defined you know, with lo by local communities, there's a chance that we can 
bring the forces of the private sector and the economic sector in good function. But this needs to be built. I think that no culture has the answer to all the challenges. I think that diversity is the driver of innovation and that putting different knowledge systems in conversation is the way forward to innovate and create the new possibilities that we have. Indigenous peoples have solutions that have been demonstrated and that work, non-Indigenous communities as well, and, uh, and uh, if innovating in a dialogue between knowledge systems is the way forward. I don't think we can simplify it. And I think there's a tremendous danger in, uh, right now on simplifying the environmental world to something of just cash. You know, and how much cash can we put into account and how easily accessible is it to a local community? It's not a matter of cash. It's a matter of values, principles, and co-responsibility and building between different knowledge systems. And we need to jump into the deep water. Just opening another fund is not enough. Yeah. Very quick question. You've, I'm stunned by your 10% chance that the Amazon doesn't collapse from somebody who lives in the Amazon. <laughs> who needs to do what that the 10% isn't realized? Shall we take that to Tiro and then move back? Tiro? Well, I know nothing about the Amazon, but maybe I can try to frame it in, in a way that what might work. Um, I have been involved for about 70 years in a minor way with the largest dam removal project in the northwestern U.S. in the Olympic Peninsula on the River Elwa. Um, I'll try to be very short, but the dams, there was two hydro dams that were put in place in 1910s and 1920s, 100 years ago, on this very important Pacific Salmon um, River system. And then about I don't know, eight years, ten years ago, both of those dams were taken down after a very complex legal and political process, and it became the largest hydro dam removal project in the world. So a couple of learning points. How was that achieved? Ecologically, it creates extremely important link between Pacific salmon, nutrient flow from the ocean, upstream, that maintains bird species, mammals, for example, the bald eagles, and so on and so on, and it establishes connectivity after a century. So that's a system action that connected the ocean, headwaters, lots of ecological functions, and helps with climate change because the waters are cooler and so on and so on. Of course, taking down large dams is very controversial because they are seen as part of the green energy source. But what we never discuss is the legacy of what those dams did to the people that were living on the river. And in this case, it was the lower Elwa tribe. Um, I have to give it to the US in this case, to the Pacific Northwest, and especially the town of Port Angeles in the Washington state, that um, there was a large public consultation between the Town people, the indigenous peoples, the scientists, the U.S. Um, Geological Survey and the federal state on uh, what should we do with those two dams and why is it important? Do we keep them for electricity, for the sawmill, take them down and what are the implications for that? And I think here is some, some of the solution space um, because this is a real world example and, and it happened. 
At the start of the public consultations, um, everybody was opposed to the removal of the dams because they said it's our reservoir lake, it's our economy, our electricity, our sawmill. By the time of the end of the consultations, and I'll be very short, um, everybody was, for the most part, in favor of removal of the dams. Completely new tourism, freshwater assets, comeback of the Pacific salmon, tourism economy, alternatives on electri electricity production from other sourcing, and a long-term connection, again, re-established for the river system. And then Elva, of course, became kind of a symbol in our field of work because the salmon actually did come back. Actually, some of the king salmon were on the first day after the dam was taken away, the Giles Canyon Dam uh, going up for the first time in 100 years. Amazing. How did they know? <laughs> Who told them that the dam will be taken out today and tomorrow you can go and have sex in the upstream like you used to do? <laughs> A century ago. <laughs> well, here comes the, the um, um, final thing, which is the lower Elva people. For the most part, uh, the, the big society in, in the Washington state had thought that the dams will stay and, and so on and so on. But a lot of the village elders and the indigenous elders saw this as a minor um, and they resisted, of course, the dams in 1920 and, and, and uh, were happy to see them gone in 2014. But they saw this as a minor, minor part in the life of the river. And they always believed the dams will come down and their connection with the Pacific salmon and, and the river will, will uh, rebirth itself. And the learning lesson here is that perhaps we need much what you were saying that conservation, especially fortress con conservation, this kind of um, <clears throat> will preserve this for the eternal use of future generations, will always miss two things. One, there are people with long-term engagement with that place, and a hundred years is just a blip in the ocean. And secondly, human societies are and I hate this word, but I'll use it here for the argument's sake, they will continue to adapt into a new river that has been now rewilded and restored. The, once they took down the reservoir, it created a novel ecosystem that has no parallel in, in science or in... It wasn't there 100 years ago, but now through succession, it's, it's uh, being repopulated by plant life, by deer, by American dippers, and in sequences and orders that we don't have data on. So it's a new world. It's a novel new ecosystem, or as the Elba would say, biocultural landscape. The only compass and the navigational capacity probably for that new future is the indigenous tribe that has been coexisting with the river through 10,000 years. They saw the coming of the ice, going of the ice, shifts in the river, new salmon species that came, and they adapted, as they are doing now. And that's probably where my own hope lies in, in the best of worlds, that uh, if we would understand these examples and le lessons learned, we might have a fighting chance. It will be a new planet, and we will have losses, but there will be something completely new coming our way. We just have to let go of what you said, that 
we don't want to change. We would like to be in 1980s, Yellowstone Park, and on and on and on. But it will not happen. It will be a new horizon, but it's not the end. As Taro said, it's not the end of our planet, or for that matter, of the need for us to work together to mitigate the impacts of climate change. But it is the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening. Please let us know what you think, and please subscribe to Telberg's New Thinking for a New World on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.